Welcome, everyone, to episode 255 of Some Like It, Scott. I'm your host, Scott Shelton, and this week we're not thinking about the Roman Empire, but we are thinking and talking about a biopic of a man who I think probably thought about the Roman Empire quite a bit. That is the Ridley Scott-directed historical epic drama, Napoleon. With me for that, I have my co-host, Scott Harvey. Scott, happy Thanksgiving. How are you? How was your holiday? It was great, Scott. Thank you for asking. Did you think about uh, the Roman I, I... Empire? Sorry, I should ask. No, I, did, I didn't, but I am uh, I do appreciate that we're keeping TikTok bits from like two months ago sure. <laughs> live here on the pod. Yeah. Uh, it is fitting, though, given the, the film that we're covering, so I, I sure. appreciate that. Um, but I'm good. Uh, yes, I had I had a very nice Thanksgiving. I uh, was in East Texas with my girlfriend's family um, and uh, took a couple extra days off work last week, so... Um, I was there from Tuesday to Saturday, uh, and it was just a very, very nice vacation. They live out in the middle of nowhere. They have a ton of land, and it was just incredibly quiet. We just sat around, ate a lot of good food, and um, it was just very peaceful and exactly what you want from a vacation. So um, I have no complaints whatsoever. I don't know if I could live in a place like that ever because of how, you know, quiet and remote it is, but for a vacation. Do you not purposes, just dream of owning acres of land in the middle of nowhere in eastern Texas? Is that not your dream? Um, it's not my dream, but I respect those for whom it is the dream. And, you know, again, having spent four days there or whatever, like, I do understand the appeal. Maybe not the long-term appeal, but um, for vacation purposes, it was... Would it you describe like, it as pastoral, or is it like a little bit more yes. deserty than that? No, no, it is. It is pastoral. It is farmland. There was animals all over the place. Cool. Um, so it's basically yeah. the place where May and Satsuki and my neighbor Totoro moved. That yeah, that's not a bad comparison, honestly. I I, I like that. Uh, I, it's not exactly uh, you sure. know the image that comes to mind, but <laughs> since you mention it. You know, it's probably a pretty good comparison point as far as uh, film locations go. Look, Miyazaki's on the brain a lot for me these days for obvious reasons for anyone who's a follower of the podcast, given we are we are in the final stretch of the Miyazaki. Countdown. I just watched The Wind Rises right before we recorded. This. Nice. I watched, it. I watched it. I rewatched it this morning and uh, well, tune into the podcast for that, because uh, yes. that's coming up, I think. As of release of this podcast, Im imminently in the next couple of days, yeah. I think part part eleven. So, yeah, look, I got a lot of thoughts. I got a lot of thoughts about that movie. I uh, oh, I don't know if you looked at my letterbox review. I'm not encouraging you to do this, Scott. But what I will say is that a line for my letterbox review is "I have seen enough," um, and I will leave it at that to tempt people uh, into I've seen enough. Okay. I've seen enough. So, you know, intrigued in the context. You're like the, you're like the guy on uh, Twitter who calls the election races or whatever. That's exactly yeah. how I felt after watching yeah. after watching this movie. <laughs> you, you've you picked up on the vibe that I'm putting down here. I've seen enough. Mm -hmm. um, All right. Fair enough. So, you know, if that gives you any sense of how I feel about the movie, I'd recommend coming and checking out what will be, I'm sure, like an hour-ish long podcast, but probably 45 minutes of me talking about what I liked about the movie. So as as i feel like a lot of the music we'll like we'll been. let you cook we'll let you cook <laughs> yeah exactly uh yeah i was home for thanksgiving as well uh, for people who listen to our ponyo episode i you know we recorded that a couple days before thanksgiving i was home with family uh, my girlfriend who pretty much every year comes to tennessee for thanksgiving at least for the before thanksgiving like the weekend and a few days before thanksgiving so it was really nice i also i took the whole week off i ended up working a little bit on monday last week but also took most of the week off so it was a very enjoyable vacation 
for me as well, feeling refreshed. I just saw Maestro uh, here at, at, at in New York City with a friend from work, and he was like, he was like, "Where? Why are you in a hurry?" Because the film was like delayed starting for half an hour. I'm like, I got to record a podcast at like 10, 10, 15 at nine. He's like, "That's just like though I couldn't imagine doing that." And I'm like, "Well, I've had a whole week of vacation, so I'm not feeling too too burnt out or tired right now." Uh, talk to me in a couple hours. We'll see if I'm I'm done talking uh, about Napoleon in a couple hours. But yeah, no, I'm excited to hit the stretch. I mean, watching a lot of movies. I saw a bunch of movies while I was home. I saw the new Hunger Games film, which I saw that as well. A two hour and 40 minute movie, Scott, that should have been an hour and 45 minute movie. And then the first act uh, of a sequel film, I think is fair to say crazy what they did in the last 45 minutes of that movie. yeah i mean i i, I did feel like at the, after watching it that i will would watch a sequel to it 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 does feel like the movie goes in a completely different direction for the third act which and is, it, and is the difficulty of trying to adapt the book into a movie but sure um, just it just seems like a terrible choice the third act in my opinion like really it was definitely my least favorite part of the movie. yeah yeah especially in a world in which we're all just trying to like grab a bunch of money out of franchises uh, why not like why not just do they literally did it with mockingjay and the fr- and i will tell you ballad of songbirds and snake part one if they had just done, cut that off at an hour 45 would have been way better than mockingjay would have been good so, yeah. yeah i mean I, yeah. I still like the movie but yes i, I take it yeah i still i still liked it as well though i have some 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 complaints i guess we'll never talk about those um but that's fine we can, that's not a big deal uh, I, I saw we'll wish the new disney animated film um I've heard some crazy things about what happens at the end of that movie. Are, <laughs> Certain reveals that happen. Yeah. Are you just talking about like the joke Twitter post that someone made about like them saying uh, them them dropping that like there's every every Disney. I, th- movie I didn't is think connected. that was a joke. It's I a thought joke. It's a joke actually it's had a, a screenshot post. from the movie. OK. All right. No, well, yeah. it's a joke post. Uh, there, there's lots of OK. Th- there's like some light stuff where like there's Easter eggs for other other yeah. movies for sure. Like. Peter Pan, like Peter Pan is like Peter who is like in the movie and like little John, like the bear from Robin hood, I think is, is like in the movie. Like there's tons of references. I don't think that they're trying to say that all the movies are in a shared universe. Like that's okay. definitely not Good. the vibe I got from the movie. And cause I also saw that same post that was getting passed around and I was like, there's yeah. no way that they do this in the movie. I didn't stay for after the credits. So if they do it after the credits then I apologize, but they did not, it, it, there was some like very brazen Easter eggs that were like extremely obvious and very on the nose. But I don't think that they're literally trying to say, Peter Pan and this movie are in the same universe. I could be wrong, okay. that, but I don't Good. think that's what they're trying to say. Um, but that was really funny when I saw that. And I was like, this is crazy if this is true. And then, of course, I saw I saw Napoleon. So why don't we talk, start talking about uh, Napoleon? That is the main topic for today's episode. It's directed by Ridley Scott, most recently seen not once but twice in 2021 with the likes of The Last Duel and House of Gucci and starring Joaquin Phoenix reprising his role of toxic white dude this time under the guise of the historical French Emperor Napoleon Bonaparte. Napoleon covers a vast swath of the military leader turned French dictator, French dictator's life starting in 1793 amid the French Revolution, leading all the way up to his second political exile to the island of St. Helena and his death in 1821. The film covers many of his famous military victories and expeditions during his rise to power, like the Siege of Toulon, the Battle of the Pyramids, and the Battle of Austerlitz, and his failures leading up to his notable fall from grace, 
like his invasion of Russia and the climactic Battle of Waterloo, but is potentially more interested in two things. One, his personality, and two, his sometimes tempestuous relationship with his lover, wife, and finally ex-wife, Josephine, played by Vanessa Kirby. Scott, did the decision to cast so wide a net through, I think fair to say, a harsh lens on the diminutive French military leader and tactician work for you, or did you find mistakes as catastrophic as Napoleon's own march to St. Petersburg littered throughout the film? Yeah, it's a bit of a mixed bag, I think. Uh, I think you, you, you hone in there on maybe one of the major issues with the film, which is the amount of territory that it tries to cover. Um, and I am not certainly not the person who wants to be saying, oh, we need to make everything into a miniseries, uh, because obviously that's not not what I want. I but want you're about to say to that right made. now. <laughs> yeah. But I, I think that it's yeah. just really, really hard to tell the story that they are trying to tell in this movie, in a movie that is not four hours long. Um, and I've got good news for the you. There's a four-hour version coming. Yeah, the director's cut is for four hours long, but supposedly that has more to do with that has even more to do with him and Josephine. The director's cut, um, which honestly I thought that was the best part of the movie was their portrayal of their relationship. I didn't feel like we necessarily needed more of that. I think. Oh, interesting. Um, where it falls short for me a little bit is in the portrayal of Napoleon as a military leader and as a military conqueror. Um, I don't think this movie gave me really any new insight into him in that particular role. Mm -hmm. um, like, you know, right in the opening title cards in the movie, it talks about him being ambitious. And everyone knows this about Napoleon, right? He's ambitious, right? He's mercurial. He, you know, made these rash decisions uh, you know to invade russia and that ultimately sort of was the first domino in the chain that led to his downfall um and everybody know, again everybody knows this about napoleon and i don't feel like the movie really got any deeper than that i like the movie portrays him as being ambitious yeah it portrays him as being mercurial and a little a odd massive and a massive him. narcissist yeah it portrays him yeah. as everything that you've always known napoleon to be but it doesn't try to unpack why he is that way, how he became that way, anything beneath the surface, I feel like, of these qualities that you already know about Napoleon. And so I did feel at times like it, it leaned more in that, that biopic camp of like the Wikipedia entry biopics, which are not mm -hmm. my favorites, right? The ones that just go from okay and then this happened and then this happened and then this happened and then this happened and it doesn't stop really to totally you know yeah. um to to really dig into these events and to dig into how they affected the, the characters um and there are so many events that it's trying to cover all of these battles you know again everything from the french revolution to the the battle of waterloo and you know the second exile and everything that happens after that and it's just too much. Like the movie is jumping all around. And um, I just felt like it was not doing the yeah. character of Napoleon justice and, and developing him in, in a way that, uh, yeah, I mean, I don't think again, if Napoleon watched this movie. I don't think any part of the film, he would have think that it did him justice. Well, I don't mean it needs to portray him in a positive light, but yeah. I mean, just simply that for creating a three-dimensional character, which is what we want in a movie. It did not do him justice in that regard. I mean, the, uh, and, I mean, and on that note right there, like, I mean, the, the portrayal of him 
I mean, it felt like borderline farcical at times. I well, mean, that's that's crazy. the thing. That this was going to be my next point is the the last at the end of the movie they show this card that is about all of the people that died during yeah, the three million people campaigns. died. Yeah, and you know, really, Scott is very clearly making the point that like this guy was an idiot. You know, no matter he gets talked about in history and everything. Yeah, but like he he just led so many people to their deaths and for what. Well, I mean, I just don't I just think why make a movie about that, right? Like why are you spending two and a half hours making a movie about this guy who you're just saying was a complete idiot? And and I don't think that that is accurate to history necessarily, right? Like he had these military victories. He he clearly had some knowledge of military strategy. And more than that, they even portray this in the film. He is able to win over people. He has some sort of charisma that he is able to, you know, go from a gunnery sergeant or whatever he is at the start of the movie to lit a literal emperor. And yeah. the the movie portrays it a little bit like he has a little bit of a way with words. But I honestly barely. Think that, I mean, Joaquin Phoenix yeah. is playing him like he's like. Some well, that's sort what of I was like going to say is I think Joaquin savant. Phoenix's performance. And I think, again, just the the very choppy nature of how the yeah. film plays out. It doesn't really make sense how Napoleon, how his rise happens, the way it's portrayed in this I mean, movie. Yeah, a hundred percent. And and then, you know, so so at the end of the day, it feels like almost a. Again, I'm not saying Napoleon is a is a deserved a positive treatment, but it feels like he just it's a one it's a very one dimensional, narrow minded view of him as a person, and it only has interest in portraying him in one particular light um and that yeah. is as a bozo basically who yeah um you know just i mean that's maybe... the crazy part is he really even in his victories right like even when you're talking about austerlitz or toulon the very sort of the one of the opening scenes of the film like he's it's not really clear how he engineered the success of these things yeah and he's kind of portrayed as this sort of like passive observer who didn't do anything and i like if that's true wow but that just seems crazy to me like it <laughs> seems wild that that's, yeah. true. that's true and again you know there's the battle of borodino as well it's like twenty-eight thousand casualties or whatever then the next thing we see is him writing a letter to josephine, uh, josephine and yeah. saying i want a great victory today and that battle is considered a victory for napoleon so I don't really understand like the the point that really Scott is necessarily trying to make. Yes, a lot of people died in Napoleon's military campaigns. A lot of people die in every single military campaign, right? Like I don't think that the sheer death toll necessarily uh, means that Napoleon was, you know, a a idiot. Now yeah. he very well may have been, and he made some very idiotic decisions toward the end of his. Um, military yeah. career for sure i think fair to but say most again, military leaders at some point in their careers make very bad decisions napoleons were catastrophic for yeah. sure no doubt about that but it, it just it just feels yeah. like he's relying on very weak evidence to you know further his thesis of the movie which again is a very i think one-dimensional thesis of napoleon was a bozo villain yeah um yeah. and I mean, again, I think the battle scenes are great looking. You know, you'd expect yeah. that from a Ridley Scott film. Certainly the you highlight know. of the certainly the highlight of the film. Yeah. And I do think that if there's one aspect of the movie which they do give some more time to and which is more developed, it is the relationship between him and Josephine. Now, I wasn't crazy about her character and interesting. Um, 
you know, I, I don't know how much they, I, again, I think they could have explored a lot more with the character of Josephine. Well, yeah, but, so that's what you're saying. You, you, that, so, yeah, this is what I was going to dig into when you said that originally, because I think earlier you had said that it was your favorite part, like their relationship was your favorite part of the movie, but it, it didn't need more of it. I felt like it needed a lot more of it. In fact, I think the whole movie should have been about that. Yeah. From, from her perspective, yes, from her perspective, I, I guess I was looking at it mainly from the, from the, the character of Napoleon. I oh, think sure. that okay. the one aspect where we do see like an arc for him maybe is in his relationship with with Josephine. But yes, I agree yeah. with you that. Uh, and, and I mean, I just viewing it from that lens, right? Because this is a movie about Napoleon. Um, yeah. You know, I think that that part of it more or less works, but I just couldn't help but feel that there's a more interesting story probably that the movie could have told with more involvement from Josephine. And I felt, again, I felt there was a more interesting story that could have been told about a lot of the different th events that we are portrayed in this movie. So yeah. very disjointed in the end. And um, it was just, it was just missing a lot. Um, and I mm -hmm. don't think it measures up to what we know that Ridley Scott can do as a filmmaker. And I mean, yeah. certainly I think, you know, I, I know people didn't love House of Gucci. I enjoyed it. I really enjoyed the last duel. I think this, I think that this, while it has its virtues, it definitely falls short of his previous two efforts. Yeah, I kind of think this is this is like a low key big miss for for him. Like I kind of do. I I he has some pretty big misses, honestly. If you go through his filmography, but yeah, uh, I haven't done that recently. Um, mm -hmm. But yeah, this a lot of this film does not does not work super well for me. I did really like the battles. I I really like the battle scenes. It's what like exactly like you said. It's what you'd expect from a Ridley Scott film to be getting right. I think they got it right. I think the Josephine stuff is headed in the right direction. But the problem for me is that I think there's tons of stuff missing on the Josephine side, which I think is what you were saying there at the end, mm -hmm. is that it really feels like it needs to be filled out more as a two-hander. Like the film kind of wants to be a two-hander about Napoleon and Josephine, I think, especially with how many letters he's writing to her. Like it feels like it wants to be that. And this version of the film, which I know is not his realized version that he wants, does not have that. My understanding is that a lot of the hour, 20 minutes that were cut from the movie are stuff about Josephine. So yeah. I, I wonder if the four hour version of the movie will produce something that feels more satisfactory in that respect to me and like really fills out those those missing pieces with that element of the plot. But Scott, I'm not going to watch the four hour version of this movie after watching the two hour and 40 minute version of the movie and not being super impressed with it. That's just sort of the unfortunate truth about it so i feel like it kind of squandered its opportunity and i'm i don't know i mean i can't imagine like ridley scott is taking a ton of like producer notes from like apple on this movie or sony who distributed the film in theaters but it kind of just felt like hey ridley we want you to put some big war scenes on like we can't have a napoleon movie if we don't have the war scenes can you make sure those get in there um and we'll pay you like you know tens of millions of dollars to get this done and he did it but like the film kind of feels like not really about the war scenes because yeah frankly they feel kind of glossed over i i mean they're yes. impressive to to look at and i enjoyed looking at them but there's no your, context for anything exactly yeah. to your point exactly like there's so little context about what's happening in those battles and frankly whether this is a decision by ridley scott or, or joaquin phoenix was just phoning it in like it, you're not getting any detail about what napoleon is doing during these battles unless what really is trying to say is that he's doing nothing during these battles 
And that to me seems extremely unlikely. And if that's yeah. the case, then, and this is maybe to the point about giving him fair shake, like, did he not do any of the planning of the battles to do the maneuvers that he does, like clearly does in the Battle of Austerlitz to There's win? There's no way he just fell backwards into everything that he was able to achieve. Like, yeah. And, and if he was relying on like certain military, like, you know, second in commands, then like, why not show that and show how he was like kind of a fake for doing that? It, it just feels like, to your point, it just feels like a ton is missing. And I, I mean, the biggest first thing that jumped out of the pa- off the page at me when I walked out of the theater is like, I cannot believe this film spans 30 years. And I felt like I learned nothing about the character. I, I just watched out of, walked out of Maestro an hour ago. And that film covers 30 plus years of Leonard Bernstein's life. I'm not going to sit here and say that Leonard Bernstein and Napoleon are like the same character, but like the film makes it like, like covers that distance properly, like in a measured way and like focuses on a single part of his life, the relationship with, um, with his wife. And like, as a result of that, like I feel extremely fulfilled by what the film showed me. And I don't feel that way about Napoleon. And I think it's, I think it's a real issue. I think, the stuff with Josephine is like heading the right direction, but it's not fully realized because I think you need more of Vanessa Kirby, frankly, in the movie. I think you need more of the sort of like internalized aspect of that character. And frankly, I'll be honest, is it like this is not the film's fault, but like when I'm watching Joaquin Phoenix do this performance, like literally it just sounds like four or five other performances he's done in the last decade. Like it's like even as recent as Bo is afraid, like it doesn't sound that different. He does the Bo is afraid run when he runs sure. away from the, the government. And that one scene, the directory, uh, he's literally yeah. doing the same run as when he's like yeah. running around his neighborhood. And Bo's doing afraid. that. It's like the same, it's like the same sort of like performance as Joker. It's the same as like inherent, like it just like feels like he's just doing this, like, I don't want to say lazy because I don't think that's what it is. It's just like he, it feels like he's recycling so much of this. Like, I'm going to show you toxic male white dude. And I don't know. Like, I thought that it kind of sucked. Like, I didn't think he was very good in the movie. Yeah. Vanessa I mean, Kirby acts him off the screen. I think he's a, a phenomenal actor, but like he just feels like he's kind of just mumbling through this a little bit. And he has some fun campy moments, but I mean, I, I do think that not all of the problems for with, with the character not being developed can be laid at, you know, Ridley Scott or the the screenwriter's feet. I think sure. he has to take some of the blame there, too. Yeah. Again, like I, I'm not going to I'm not going to point fingers and say whose fault. But like, I don't understand how anyone viewed this guy as charismatic based on the performance. He's not. Yeah, he's exactly. not charismatic in this movie. And and, and that is but I mean, and that is the thing that it seems like that's how Ridley Scott wants to portray him, maybe, is yeah. that he's he wasn't. I can only assume that because there's but no way Ridley just, watched that performance that and is like, you nailed disingenuous. it. Disingenuous. Yeah. Again, like because even the movie that he is making is acknowledging that Napoleon, you know, he found he he, he was able to scheme his way up the ladder a little bit. And so how does he do that? Right. How if he's this charismaless i mean in the battle of toulon he like starts charging towards fighting gets blown off his horse and like (laughs) like he's kind of just like literally from the start of the movie he's sort of played as this kind of like almost dunce like figure um sort of buffoon like butt of butt of a bunch of jokes which is entertaining at times but it doesn't totally satisfying biopic it definitely it definitely creates some solid comedic moments but like is, is this film supposed to be a comedy I don't 
it, it ends up kind of coming off that way a little bit. I mean, yeah. Which is a choice. And I just, yeah, I don't know. It didn't work. It didn't really work for me super well. And yeah, I thought I thought it was a miss. I thought it was a miss. Yeah, I mean, he's. it seems like he's trying to go a little bit for sort of the irreverent tone that he had in the last duel. Um, with... <laughs> or House of Gucci, for that matter. But yeah. Sure, but I mean, uh, yeah, yeah, the yeah, last duel yeah. being another sort of... Yeah, yeah. I mean, I mean another French historical film. Guess, but yes, another yeah. like further back historical film. But... He this the screenwriter, you know, he, he did not have as strong of a screenwriter on this film as he did. David Scarpa. With yes. the last duel where he had three three really good ones. So um yeah, David Scarpa is the screenwriter on this. I think most recently he'd done all the money in the world uh for Ridley Scott. Yeah. As well. And then before that it had been like a decade where he did the day the earth stood still for Scott Derrickson, which I think is that Keanu Reeves? In that uh-huh yeah. yeah incredible and the but i bad news scott he's doing gladiator too so uh, i don't know if that really imbues me with a ton of confidence in that project because yeah i well, do think that it's I, yeah a shrug. again i think the movie just kind of got chopped to bits probably is is also the over an overarching issue that we're talking about here possibly that's fair i mean i do think there could be some some significant strength with Vanessa Kirby's scenes, if that is the case of what happened with the, with the hour and 20 minutes that are cut out of the theatrical version, I think there could be some serious um, reassurance, if that's the right word, bringing that back in and seeing how that, because it does, it feels like the film wants like the emotional core of the movie is more centered around that. And yeah. Okay. Sometimes farce and satire don't work for everyone. And maybe those are misses, whatever. Um, and I don't blame the story decisions of like, oh, we're only going to briefly cover these battles because we care about making fun of his personality and exploring his relationship with Josephine. So I think that's fair to sort of give some grace there for this for the screenwriting. Because, I mean, this is not new for Ridley Scott, right? Like Blade Runner has one of the most famous director's cuts, like people saying that the director's cut is way better than the theatrical cut. And there's a final cut uh, of that, too. There's not even what even is the real cut of that yeah. movie. And then Kingdom... Kingdom of Heaven is also, you know, one of the most famous. If anyone tells you anything about that movie, Kingdom of Heaven, it's that, oh, hey, the director's cut is amazing, but the theatrical cut sucks. So he has had this issue before. And I do wonder if The Last Duel and House of Gucci, like, flopping uh, had anything to do with, you know, the, the studio maybe wanting to rein things out a little bit. Well, unfortunately, it didn't work. Um... It didn't work. Yeah, for me, at least. But Joaquin Phoenix, we started to talk about him. Do you want to share a few more thoughts? I mean, I, I sort of shared that I wasn't really impressed with this performance. And sounds like you agreed somewhat, but I'd love for you to expound a little bit more about exactly what you thought of the performance here. I mean, yeah, look, it, again, it's hard to know where the blame lies a little bit because I feel like he's probably giving the performance that he's asked to get of by Ridley Scott and just portraying this yeah, guy maybe. is a pretty pathetic man child right yeah um you know he has some pretty you know hilarious pitiful line readings and stuff sure like, yeah. you guys think you're so good because you have boats uh which is pretty funny that's a good i mean that was uh, good yeah yeah but you know he, he's just portrayed as you know a bumbling idiot as we have said many times now um destiny so, delivered me this lamb chop or whatever it is yes exactly yeah. yeah um and so you know he has some fun with those campy moments of the character but 
you know, those are just individual moments and it doesn't add up to a satisfying character portrait. And, um, and so, you know, I guess I do have to criticize his performance because it didn't give me what I think we needed from this character, you know, whose, whose fault that is ultimately, it, uh, is another question, but like we've said, I think he doesn't have any charisma. He's annoying. He's, you know, a narcissistic, egotistical, right? And we don't really know why, right? We ju it's just, this is the way he is. You know this. It's Napoleon, guys. Come on. Like, you, you know, you, you, you know how Napoleon is. And it's not interested in exploring anything about, you know, how he became that way. I mean, his mother is in this movie very briefly. Uh, and I, I just was like, why have we not explored like his family any more than this? Like, why, why, you know, there, here's an opportunity right here. Why, why is the first time we see his mother, she's like, hey, you need to go sleep with this 18 year old so uh, you can, you know, actually bear a child. Like, it seems like there's something there uh, to that character, maybe if, if that's what his mother is out here telling him to do, but we don't explore that. We don't know why Napoleon is the way that he is. Um, and that just doesn't make for an interesting biopic. Like when I go watch a biopic, I want to, you know, I want to get some insight from it. I don't want to just have my, you know, beliefs or whatever reinforced about who this person was or, or given a very surface level, very, you know, history book portrayal of this person. Yeah, I, I, I just really can't get over like the lack of, charisma because we know joaquin is like capable of that like yeah. even in other similar performances i think he's shown how charismatic he can be and i think that's what really sort of breaks it like like really sort of breaks the performance for me because you, you watch him and it's like there's like one scene at the end of the movie where he's like on welling like is it wellington wellington's boat um which apparently yeah, did he... not happen in real life like they never the two of them actually never met um but mm -hmm. that who that doesn't matter who cares um but he's like in, he's like entertaining and holding court with all these like they call them like the the young, young midshipmen yeah. or whatever. And it's just like I don't understand why these kids care. Like the film has not shown me why these these young men would be interested in Napoleon outside of the fact that he just like ruled France. Just like okay, interesting. But like, and, why are they trying to hang out with him? That's like weird, right? And I mean, again, these all seem like choices made. Is the problem like the? the they were poor choices made because in that same scene, you know, you have the Duke of Wellington who is coming in to speak with Napoleon. And it seems like he kind of has the same reaction that you're having, right? Of like, I'm really confused. Like, why are all these people here? Because yeah. they tell him, they're like, oh, these guys worship Napoleon. They're like, they worship him. I mean, That's the film barely, barely shows it at all. But like the people yeah. of France, I mean, you kind of see it when he returns from his first exit. The people of France loved him, but it's not, yeah, not clear at all why. He's able to convince all of those kings, all, all of the king's soldiers who like initially come to apprehend him when he returns to yeah. France to not only to not do that, but to like join him instead. And it's just not clear why that is the case. Yeah. And, you know, maybe that's the portrayal that Ridley Scott wants, but like it doesn't really make sense with. I mean, it just feels dishonest. And even what we see. Well, yeah. And I mean, you know. He is a British director, so <laughs> yeah, I'm sure the French are loving. I loving it. Um, yeah, but th but that's the thing, right? Like, 
to your point at the at the start, like who are you having to convince that Napoleon was like not a good dude? Like yeah. it's not like people are, need to wor- like want to bad, worship. You know? Yeah, exactly. It's not like people need to worship at the altar of Napoleon. Like, and then they're like casting him as this sort of like borderline like fascist like Hitler like kind of guy. Like at different points in the movie, with the way that he's commanding the French military to like you know, press upon the voting electorate at, is that Versailles? I don't know where they were having, where they run out. And then he like, he sends the military back in and they like take the vote with him at gunpoint. Like that's like super crazy stuff. Slap uh, Josephine when they're like doing the divorce decree, which apparently is something that did not happen. Um, Yeah. I mean, that's okay. Interesting. Yeah. This is the thing. It's just like, why are we making stuff up to make him look bad? When like surely there is plenty of real stuff to make him look bad, like surely, right? Like, do we have to make up the fact yeah. that they intentionally like damage the pyramids d- to like make Napoleon seem bad? Like, do we really have to make that up? Like, that's crazy. He, he just he just doesn't really seem interested in any sort of portrayal of Napoleon as a human being, like in any yeah. way. Maybe that's he the thing. Cause I, I mean, because I think that he like is. I think that Ridley is interested in that. But it just seems so myopic. Like it just seems like such a myopic yeah. choice to represent him in a way that makes the bad stuff that that did happen or that you do portray as like unfair. Like it almost makes him look better because I'm just like this seems so absurd. Like this seems so farcical that you're not even acknowledging really at all that he has all these like what have to be considered like impressive qualities. Yeah. Like you're you're glossing over his charisma, you're glossing over his military capabilities, like you're making him look like a dunce and an idiot. And those things may be true, some or even most of the time, but surely there was some amount of time in there where he either was heavily reliant on the people around him to succeed, or he wasn't those things that you're describing him as. And it feels weird to not include this in the movie. And it feels weird that Joaquin Phoenix is giving a performance that doesn't seem to acknowledge that either. And so, yeah, maybe this, maybe the blame doesn't go on Joaquin at all. I, I frankly, I don't know, but it, I think it's all, it's all an L for me. I think for him, Vanessa Kirby, on the other hand, feels like a different story. I thought she was really fantastic in the film. I found her to be, I mean, as I always do, maybe I'm, maybe this is like a personal, personal bias, but I find her just always super charismatic in movies. Huge fan of her. Uh, she's familiar with royal territory. She's played Princess Margaret in the first couple seasons of The Crown. So she has uh, she has a history with this history. And I think she slots into this role of scorned. Uh, I got Was she like middle class? I'm not like 100 percent sure exactly what her origins are from. Like seemed like she was married to a military officer who was murdered during Robespierre's reign of terror uh, during and after the French Revolution. And sort of ended up in jail, then released when all of that ended and then her path crossed with Napoleon's. He becomes uh, frankly, creepily obsessed with her, which may very well be true. That's that that's actually kind of believable that somebody like Napoleon would, would be like that. And basically they start this relationship, you know, can't particularly say it, it feels like it's out of love, but certainly for her personal gain insofar as she, her status is elevated. Her livelihood is protected and he's clearly attracted to her. She's a very attractive woman and grants him 
uh, sort of status as a you know married political operate like military operator, and obviously as becomes critical for the latter parts of the film, uh, hopefully would be producing an heir for him, but that of course does not happen. I think that she slots into that role like really well. Her mercurialness. I mean, you're talking about the mercurialness of Napoleon, like her mercurialness, I think as well is something that, that comes off really well. I think, I think Vanessa Kirby is like really great at that sort of like elusive, mysterious, uh, equality about her character. I think she does that really well as the white widow in the mission impossible franchise. Like she just has this sort of aloofness that you can't quite capture or get a hold of. And I think that that works really well for Josephine and it, and it sort of really paints a, a really poignant picture uh, for this Napoleon character that they've created, that they've pit, that they've that they've sort of portrayed as someone who is not quite de- like adept enough to to capture and keep a hold of a spirit or a personality like that, like that he almost like doesn't have enough force. The way that they are portraying, he doesn't have enough force of will to really like sort of ensnare this uh, like what he desires in her, and I think that sort of tempestuousness in her relationship in the relationship works well as he sort of wields his power and authority as a French leader over her. And as she, you know, as she cheats, as she's in, you know, um, and, you know, sleeps with other men is interested in other things is not super faithful to him, but always there is this link that I think really starts to play out better in the, you know, middle third, second, second you know last third of the movie where she is in this prison that he has constructed basically for her and she just is kind of drowning a little bit and i think vanessa kirby plays that really well i really would have loved more in the final act of the you know the final third of the movie to have even more of what that was like once they were divorced leading up to the divorce that they that they had because i think there's so much there that I felt like there was a really rich texture on that character in the first act of the movie as they were coming together. And then sort of after they had to focus more on the military campaigns that sort of took a backseat and it really just felt like he was writing a bunch of letters to her and then like was yelling at her when he was mad when she wasn't giving him an air. And so I really liked what I saw from Vanessa Kirby. And as I mentioned earlier, I think the movie would benefit even more from having more of her and more of her perspective, more scenes with just her in it exploring what this experience with Napoleon as your husband is like during this time. And from what I saw, she's like going to be, she's very capable of owning that in the film. And I'm curious, I mean, not curious enough to watch it as I've said multiple times already, but I'm curious if that comes through and the extended cut of the, of the movie did, did you sort of have a similar experience with her? Or did you feel differently? No, I thought she was good. I mean, I think she has a commanding, you know, presence in this role. I think, you know, you never quite know what she's thinking as you have alluded to. And like, for example, when, when she, she does cheat and, um, you know, Napoleon obviously gets very angry, deserts his, his uh, men just to come confront her about this. And initially she's, you know, crying. She's very apologetic. You know, she's saying, Hey, you know, just don't leave me or whatever. Um, and then like, you know, a few moments later, she's like basically accosting him and saying, you know, that you need me, right? Like you, you know, you, you're not anything without me, basically, um, kind of, kind of giving him a taste of his own medicine, like uh, of the stuff that he wants her to say to him. Um, 
And so you never quite know, like, you know, what is, you know, what side is she playing here, right? Like, who, what are her true feelings? And I think that's probably, you know, authentic to who this person was, yeah, you know, totally. maybe not really feeling the freedom to show what her, her true feelings are. But, um, but I, and, and I do think, you know, yes, I, I agree that maybe the, the, she is, put on the sidelines for a little bit of the back half of the movie, but um, I, I do think her presence is strong enough to where uh, you, you understand, right. That she is like this North star in Napoleon's life that he just keeps coming back to wherever he may be. Um, even though she can't produce this air for him, like, you know, they're, they're divorced, but he's still going to see her. He's still hearing her voice. You know, it's basically said that he, you know, leaves uh he he escapes from elba because he is trying to get back to her because she is sick um and so i, I do think that again that is one aspect of the movie which more or less works is you know his perspective on her and her being this sort of constant thing in his life that um you know he, like i said she's a north star that always keeps pulling um him back to her direction and you know maybe that is the cause of some of his military woes who knows again the movie doesn't really go there which i would have liked to see it do um but but i think her performance is successful because you know she she is able to fill that role in a convincing way scott we've Talked about some of the negatives, a little bit of the positive, Best Kirby. Let's talk about the battle scenes. I think a lot of people are going to go see this movie, especially in theaters, for the big epic war scenes. I had this sort of ongoing, not joke because I was serious with my friend who was very excited to see the big, the big battles, that I didn't think there was going to be very many of them because I was getting this vibe that the film wasn't really going to be about that. We still got a lot of them, even though I don't think the film is really about that. So I think it's worth talking about because I did find it to be one of the highlights of the movie. thought it was really incredibly well staged and choreographed and shot. And I found it to be some of the most compelling stuff in the movie. Did you feel similarly or, or were you not as impressed? No, I think they're very strong. Again, Ridley Scott, very experienced in this field. And, you know, he, he, he's really trying to make a point here about all of the casualties of napoleon's you know reign of terror so to speak and so i think it makes sense the way that he portrayed you know the way that he shoots these battle scenes they're very <clears throat> graphic they're very gory you know grimy like people are getting blown away you know they're they're dying in pretty um brutal ways i mean there's there's one scene where like the you know the royalists or or whatever they're called are you know, making demonstrations in the um, the town. Yeah, it's, it was. It's almost like Les Miserables. Like almost yeah, kind of. Yeah. Well, and yeah. Napoleon just sends in the cannons, and like we just get that this crazy. Like, shots yeah. shot of yeah, like just entire like rows of people just mowed down. I, I like it was something I feel like I had never seen in a in a war movie like this before, and um, and so that was you know again brutal which is what he wants to emphasize but it it has that intensity to it you know it does feel like you're right there in the 
in the thick of it, especially towards the end, especially the Battle of Waterloo. And I think he does a pretty good job of orienting us to where everybody is on the battlefield, because obviously you have different, you know, f- forces at play here. Um, and we get that, you know, brief sort of scene where Napoleon is kind of showing on this like table where everyone is going to be. And uh, I think that's helpful. And like I said, it it orients us. And so, you know, when the Prussians basically come riding in um, from the, the side, um, you basically know that, you know, the French are, are, are toast at this point because um, those are the reinforcements that were needed. Um, so, yeah, I mean, I, I think it's impressive what he's able to pull off with these battle sequences. You see where the money went. Um, you can see that all up there on the screen and you know they don't look cheap or anything like that um and i think they you know are able to capture that gory intensity and brutality that is probably you know again authentic to the real battles but also are consistent with what ridley scott is trying to say about napoleon and his you know callousness and the consequences that you know, other people suffered because of his actions. Yeah. Yeah. I, I mean, I think it's fair to say, and I know I was alluding to this earlier, that you, you understand why the film costs so much when you watch the battle scenes, because it does look extremely well made. And I'm actually, who did the cinematography for this? I was thinking That's about a good this question. movie, and then, I for, and then I forgot to look it up after. Darius Wolski. I'm not familiar with him. Oh, I've heard of him. Yeah. He did Pirates of the Caribbean. Okay, there you go. He's he did all the Gore Verbinski Pirates of the Caribbean movies. He also did on Stranger Tides, but they spared him. Oscar nominated for News of the World. Remember that? That was a real movie. <laughs> the Paul, the definitely Tom Hanks. Paul is yeah. that Paul Greengrass did that movie? Yes, he did. That's crazy. Yeah. He seems to but be he a, shot a lot of Ridley, Ridley Scott films. Yeah. 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 And uh, he also shot Crimson Tide, one of my favorite movies. So that's cool from all the way back in the 90s. Tony Scott joint, right? Yes. 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 Ridley's brother. Yeah. R.I.P. Um, yeah. I mean, I thought that they were extremely well, well made. I just wish the sort of same level of com- I, I think I wish I had felt the same level of composition in a lot of other stuff, because I think that it like tried to at times. But Scott, I'm surprised you haven't mentioned this yet. I don't think. But film very gray. Did you have a problem with the with the dark with the with the light? And I was thinking of you as I was watching this movie. I'm like, this film's dark. This film's very dark. Well, I did, and I I noticed it particularly in the beginning in the first battle scene. And I mean, yes, it it's not aesthetically pleasing, but I think that's that's a choice that's being made here. Neither right? is like, war. It's, <laughs> yeah. Yes, exactly. So. It's the same concept as like, you know, the Batman being so, so dark, right? Like this is, I just mean the color palette. I just mean the color palette of the movie, less the, maybe the actual. But I I can get past it if it is an aesthetic choice that is being made. um, And that it's a choice that makes sense, which I think it mostly does here. Um, It's just, you know, when we're in the MCU and there's absolutely no reason for every single environment to look the same, that. It gets my well, what if it's the same thing? Maybe they're making a commentary about how ma- massive scale fights that destroy cities are bad. Have you ever thought about that? You know what? I haven't thought about that. Uh, <laughs> yeah, you're right. Oh, gosh. I wish I believed everything I said on this podcast is what I'll say. Uh, <laughs> any, I think we. I, I'm trying to wrap my head around other stuff that would be interesting to talk about because I feel like we kind of talked about the relationship 
with Josephine. We've talked about the portrayal, his portrayal as this man child. We've talked about the battles. Are there any big topics left that you think we've missed or that you think we're missing from the movie that the film really needed more of that you want to highlight? But I think I've kind of, you know, just said I would have liked to see more of Napoleon's early life, his backstory, his childhood, you know, something that would give us a, you know, clue as to how he became this person. Because it just seems like, again, the movie opens up with that card. It's like, you know, there's an he's an ambitious gunnery sergeant. And it's like, all right, we've told you who he is now. Like, and, and you all know this because it's Napoleon. So we got that out of the way. Now we can just kind of, you know, roll through the highlights, the greatest hits, if you will, of Napoleon's life and career. Yeah. Um, and I mean, it hardly needs to be said, but you got to do more than that. Yeah. Yeah. I don't know. I think I have too much else to say either. I feel like we've been pretty critical of the film. I think that's feels fair from my respect, but just wanted to make sure there wasn't anything else. All right, Scott, favorite scene or moment from Napoleon? Yeah, I mean, I, I guess it's the Battle of Waterloo. Um, you know, it's it's the, the standout, I think, of the battle scenes that we see at the end there. And like I said, I think Ridley Scott does a nice job not only making it a, a very intense and immersive battle sequence, but of orienting us because I think, you know, in this in this battle scene, it's important for us to understand where everyone is and how you know how 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 this led to the French's downfall. Now, you know, to an overall point we're making, I don't think there's enough discussion of like the tactics to where yeah um, we understand exactly how Napoleon aired because it just seems like he's just saying, "All right, go on, attack them." Well, it seems like it, it seems like it sounded like he aired in that it was. Because the weird thing here is it kind of feels like it was, the film is saying that it was bad luck, right? Because the, they weren't attacking early enough because of the rain, yeah. right? And and ultimately, they were probably going to lose the fight anyway, but they really got screwed when the Austrians showed up or the Prussians or whoever it was. Yeah. Right, yeah. because, yeah, they're, it seems like they're actually like kind of winning against the British. But once the Ish, Prussians... maybe, yeah. Yeah. The Duke of Wellington was at least like because they show, you know, when the Prussians come running in, the Duke of Wellington's like, well, thank God they're here. So, yeah, you know, he was concerned in some regard. Yeah, I think that's right. I it, it seemed ambiguous, like the battle was up in the air. I think is, is fair to say it was. pretty. Yeah. It seems like he was making the film. The vibe was that he was making bad decisions, I think, in, in what he was doing. And he probably and he maybe probably would have lost the fight anyway. But it does feel like. um you know, it's hard to to say that it, it it was more than just like, oh, he got screwed because like he just couldn't fight early enough because of the rain. And like that seems that like that seems weird to me personally. So, you know, it's, it's I think it's just hard. I think it's like really hard um, to like pick the stuff out for me. And so that's where I sort of landed on yeah. on that particular scene and wanting more of the tactics and all that stuff and i'm picking sure. a similar vibe for my favorite scene mine is the battle of Auschwitz, where i think it starts to get it it's like the closest it comes in terms of tactics i think because you see in this sort of like layout of the battle and it shows you the sequences of everything happening and them surprising 
the Russian Austrian army from the side. It does build a lot of good tension in the film by sort of not revealing to you what the tactics are going to be beforehand. So that in that respect, I, I found that to be my favorite scene is especially with like the cannons shooting holes in the ice that they're yeah. all sort of falling into at that, at the end of that, at that sequence. But yeah, more tactics. And yeah. And the, we do get a very funny line, like in response to that, um, that battle, which is when the Austrian emperor comes to meet with Napoleon and he says, Oh, it's so nice to meet a fellow emperor. For once, yeah, which I just thought was a really funny line. But this was right before he asked to marry his 15 year old, yeah. Oh, that, that was the Russian, that was the Russian, no, that's the Russian guy, that was the yeah, Russian guy. Alexander or whatever, yeah, yikes. Um, what are you gonna do? You know, can't win them all, gotta no, get in there somehow. All right, Scott, out of 10, what are you giving Napoleon? I give it a 5.8. I think the technical prowess pushes it just a little bit over that, you know, yeah. totally mid precipice, but sure. um. It's it's a disappointment given the scale and given the people involved. I agree. It's a five point five for me, so we're pretty much in the same place. Yeah, I think it's I think it's a miss. I think maybe it was misconceived from the start to your point around is it possible to cover Napoleon's life in the span of a movie? I think the answer is probably not. And so if you're gonna cover it in a movie, you gotta pick a you gotta pick a lane. Or just make a more psychological film about Napoleon himself. Like you know, I, I was just thinking sure. about Priscilla which I just, you know, watched also, which I know we've both seen now. Good Obviously, film. it's it's different. Yeah, there, you know, there's probably a lot less to talk about in the life. There should have been more war scenes in that movie, I'll tell you that much. Yeah, than in Napoleon. But Sofia Coppola clearly took a different approach to telling that story and said, okay, we're going to try to put you in the shoes of this person. We're not going to try to just show, hey, you know, here's all the stuff that's important that happened in the life of Priscilla Presley. And the movie is way better because of that. So I just think that I appreciate that approach to a biopic better. One that isn't as focused on let's get all of the, the facts and the events out here. And let's actually try to tell a story about this person and help you to understand this person. Yeah. Yeah. I agree with that. So not our favorite movie of the year. I think it's fair to say, but that will do it for our discussion on Napoleon. We'll take a short break. When we come back, we'll be talking about the latest developments in the Scream franchise for Screen 7, as well as the news that the Golden Globes are really actually back, maybe? Stay tuned. We'll be right back. Welcome back to part two of today's episode of Some Like It, Scott. As mentioned before the break, there has been some news in the Scream franchise. They came out like in back-to-back days, Scott. I'm not sure that they're really related. It doesn't really seem like they're related because one follow-up story to one of them makes it sound like Jenna Ortega, uh, obviously, I guess not the leading role in the Scream franchise, but certainly the most famous person who's still acting in the Scream franchise may have already uh, removed herself from the next film months ago. But Scott, tell us a little bit more about what's going on in, in the world of uh, the main sisters of the Scream franchise currently. Yeah. So 
basically, as you said, there's kind of two stories here, and they broke yeah. on consecutive days. The first story involves Melissa Barrera, who is, I guess you would say, the star of, of the the newer Scream film. She so, plays certainly Sam. Certainly the, the lead. Yeah, yeah the lead I believe her film. character's name is Sam. Um, she, you know, again, is the lead. She plays the, the daughter of Billy Loomis, of course, from yep. the original Scream film. Um, and, you know, is, has been in other stuff, was in In the Heights, uh, and has popped up in a couple other movies as well. Um, but she, uh, wa- the news came out, I believe, Tuesday or Wednesday of this week, that she uh, had been terminated from her, her role in the Scream franchise due to what the production company, Spyglass uh, Media, Which is- uh, referred to as anti-Semitic comments that were made by her. Um, in the, of course, in, in the wake of the continuing conflict in Israel and Palestine, and um, didn't really say a whole lot more than that as far as what the comments were. Um, however, uh, it didn't take long, of course, for internet sleuths to, uh, you know, sort of deduce that perhaps um, it seems like this may have had something to do with an Instagram story that Melissa Barrera shared in which she spoke about what was going on in Gaza, asked for a ceasefire, and uh, referred to, I think, perhaps the most um, questionable part from the perspective of Spyglass Media, perhaps, was that she referred to as a genocide what was going on in in Palestine. And uh, so many have deduced that it was this Instagram post that, you know, led to her uh, role being terminated in the franchise um, and led to, you know, these accusations of her making anti-Semitic comments. There have been other sort of unverified accounts that have also come out of people saying, oh, no, no, it doesn't have anything to do with this. Actually, you guys don't really know the full story. I can't say anything about what the full story is, but trust me, there was worse comments that got made, um, which, you know, I, I don't really know about that. But um, those those accounts are out there. Um so Melissa Barrera, you know, terminated from the Scream franchise and this um, caused a lot of discussion about, of course, the ethics of doing that, the ethics of terminating uh, somebody from their position simply for um, expressing what some would say is a political belief. But uh, obviously, um, you know, some of the language she used was very loaded uh, in today's, you know, in the, the way that we talk about these things. It's a very, very sensitive issue um from from all you know parties concerned um and so then uh with with that in mind the next day uh is what scott was referring to the story that jenna ortega is also not going to be returning uh to the screen franchise of course the second lead as you mentioned and the most famous person mainly due to her starring role on the netflix series wednesday and wednesday is in fact the reason why um, it was it was given that Jenna Ortega is not going to be returning because her her filming schedule for Wednesday, um, you know, did not allow her to be able to accommodate the Scream franchise any further. And uh, obviously, making a strategic call there that Wednesday, being the the ma- massive hit that it is, um, you know, makes more sense for her to continue. Well, I think um, she's contractually obligated. Um, yes, in the deal she I'm signed, sure that so. has something to do with it, too. I don't but, really think she actually wants... I mean, she she's pretty vocal about how much she hates that show, so I don't really think she wants to be doing it. 
<laughs> yeah, uh, she hated the first season of the show. I think there was some, you know, maybe some talk about her having a little bit more say in what ah, is okay. going to go on in the second season because I think gotcha. one of her issues was like, oh, she didn't want the character to have a romance uh, because she didn't feel like that was, you know, what Wednesday was. It's not sure to was the all about. Um, and since she is the star, you know, she is sort of, I guess you would say, the a large reason for the show's success thus far. Um, perhaps she is given being given a little more creative control um, going forward. But regardless, you know, of course, with the proximity of this um, to the Melissa Barrera story, you know, it did cause many to to say that, oh, well, this was actually General Ortega, you know, not without saying so, uh, you know, supporting her, her castmate uh, supporting Melissa Barrera and saying, I'm not going to continue to participate in this either if uh, if we're going to be terminating people for um, for expressing these beliefs. Um, Scott, obviously a, a lot of issues there. I, I don't think we necessarily need to get into the whole, you know, sociopolitical discussion here of, of what's going on. But, uh, you know, probably worth maybe uh, talking about, you know, do you think we're going to see more of this sort of thing happening where, especially in relation to this conflict, maybe where people uh, who are more outspoken are, you know, possibly losing jobs because of that. Um, and I guess maybe the bigger question just for the movie itself is where does the Scream franchise go from here, having lost, um, you know, its two stars and, you know, the, as particularly in the last movie, it's, the, the movie seemed to be very anchored around um, this group of four characters, um, of course, with Melissa Pereira and Jenna Ortega being two of them, and now only two of them are left. Of course, uh, Jenna, Christopher Landon was going to be directing the new Scream film. Uh, he's taking over from the Radio Silence guys, um, and he has actually come out and said uh, about the Melissa Pereira thing, he was like, look, I'm upset right now. This wasn't my decision. You know, people, you know, need to know that I, I'm not endorsing this is kind of what his statement on the whole issue was so it's it's a whole mess scott any thoughts on all this yeah i i think as to the key question of like are a lot of people going to lose their roles and their jobs are they going to be terminated from their contracts to the extent they have them related to being outspoken uh, about what's going on in israel and gaza i think it depends maybe that's like a cop-out thing to say but melissa barrera i don't know how important she is to the scream franchise jenna ortega feels quite important but melissa barrera doesn't really like if jenna ortega were to have done this for example i don't know that they would have fired her but i think the truth is is that melissa barrera probably isn't valued as highly as someone of the star power of a jenna ortega for the franchise and so the, those people who are more vulnerable, who are less entrenched maybe in their relationship with their audience might be at a higher risk for receiving more very explicit and direct repercussions within the business um, for being outspoken in a way that their employers don't approve of. Whether that's right or wrong, I think is a completely separate question, but I think that's probably the reality of it. I mean, take Susan Sarandon, for example, last week. If Susan Sarandon were still an A-list movie star, I don't know if she would have been as crucified as hard as she was for saying some pretty outrageous stuff, in my opinion. Um, 
but like if she were still an A-list movie star and and relevant, like she probably wouldn't have been dropped by all of her agents. You know what I mean? So I just think it really has to do with what your uh, current state in the industry is. And not to get super inside baseball on this, but I think it's relevant to this conversation. There's a CAA agent named Maha Dakil who a couple weeks ago, or weeks ago, a month ago, I mean, this thing, this crisis has been ongoing now for over almost two months. But at some point, she was very outspoken. CEA, one of the major agencies in Hollywood, um, was very outspoken about the situation in Gaza and was slapped down pretty hard by Brian Lord, who's the head of CAA, was removed for, from like an executive committee and was not fired, but I believe Aaron Sorkin um, dropped her as his agent. And I think he might be the only person who did do that, but it, it really is like, it feels like a very case by case basis. Cause at the same time you have like other, maybe more star power, like high powered people making comments like Boots Riley, for example, is pretty outspoken about stuff going on in Israel and Gaza. You don't hear anything about, about Boots Riley. Um, so I think it really depends on a case by case basis. Obviously how extreme what's being said is a factor as well. You know, I don't have, I'm not, I don't really have a strong opinion about specifically what Melissa Barrera said. Cause I don't even know really, I don't think anyone really knows what it's about. It seems like it's this genocide comment. I do agree with you. It like does kind of seem that way, but uh, yeah, it's kind of like, I, I'm not really a hundred percent sure. And again, like I think in like a gray area, if you call that a gray area, I don't know to some people that might be a gray area than to other people, but like in that sort of zone, you're going to have different, uh, different reactions based on who you are, I think. So is it going to affect other people? Probably. I think longer term, if we want to talk about like the future repercussions, I think it's far more likely that, that like filmmakers, producers, agents, they, they're more likely to remember what is happening right now and have that affect you in the future than it is to affect you explicitly right now. Because obviously this Melissa Barrera stuff has garnered a lot of attention, but it, in another situation, it'd be, it just take Boots Riley, for example, maybe next time Boots Riley wants to make a film. I'm not saying he's in business with Spyglass, but like Spyglass is not going to be interested in funding, maybe in, ma making movies with him. You know what I mean? So I, I think there's like longer term repercussions on individuals that aren't as explicit and almost more uh, under the radar, implicit in what's going on. So it's going to be really hard, I think, to, to really parse through the longer term implications of people being outspoken about this very hot topic, especially among uh, Hollywood, where there is a strong Jewish community within Hollywood who care very deeply about the subject matter. And then on the other side, some very liberal, progressive, pro-Palestinian um, actors and actresses and you know all above the line and below the line talent involved as well so it's really two sides uh of an industry that uh you know there's very varying political beliefs about that and i think that there's going to be more sort of implicit responses than explicit responses if that makes sense it's going to be hard to talk about but i think something to keep in mind as certain stuff is tolerated in the moment but maybe remembered moving forward yeah, and one of the interesting, um, 
you, you know, also details. You mentioned the the agent. I, I don't recall what her name was, but um, Maha Dakio. Of course, was that you know Tom Cruise uh, of all people came to sort of her defense. Um, at least that was the story that came out. Tom Cruise, you know, the last person you would expect Mr. Movie Star himself to yeah. come out and try to rock the boat in any particular direction. Also, maybe uh, the last person that you'd want coming and trying, like Mr. Scientology coming to try and yeah, defend sure. you in the argument. Sure. <laughs> um, I, I hear you on that. Uh, yeah. But anyway, j just an interesting, interesting point that like, you know, there are people on the fringes like, Boots Riley, who you mentioned, that are, you know, being outspoken about this. But there's also, you know, somebody as big as Tom Cruise, who is at least making some sort of gesture, perhaps indicating where he comes down on the the issue. And so it, you're, you're probably right. There are going to be a varying, uh, you know, varying, uh, varying responses across the board, because if Tom Cruise, you know, is making Mission Impossible 9 or whatever, and, you know, does this there's zero chance right that he's going to suffer any sort of consequences for it um, i mean he suffered z zero consequences for scientology i don't think he's going to suffer any yeah. consequences from saying <laughs> anything about gaza and israel i also just think people don't really pay attention to what tom cruise I, I mean i could be wrong about that but i just don't think people also really care about what tom cruise's opinions are on like socio-political matters because of the scientology stuff they're yeah, all like they're you're obviously like a movie star but like we don't care what you think about this thing I think everyone has just kind of accepted that they're going to separate the art from the artist when it comes to Tom Cruise at this point. But um, as far as the Scream franchise, yeah, I don't know where we go from here. You know, Mason Gooding and Jasmine Cephas Jones, who are the people, or Jasmine Savoy Brown, sorry, who are the people that, um, you know, are are left of the two main characters. I don't believe they've said anything or, or you know, that I've seen. Um what is Christopher Landon going to do, right? Does he try to build a movie around them or are we going to introduce somebody, uh, you know, a whole new lead? Um, no, they're going to bring, they're going to try really hard to bring people back, Scott. I mean, that's definitely what they're going to do, right? They're yeah. going to go deeper, deeper into the repository. They're going to try to convince Nev Campbell to come back again. Like they're going to try to get, they're just going to try to get the original people back. I mean, surely that's what they're going to do, right? I mean, yes, pr probably. Uh, I think that, I do think that the Scream name alone carries some weight, regardless of who is, you know, in the movie, so to speak. Um, for certain so, moviegoers, yes, but not for the yeah. Jenna Ortega crowd, I don't think. Yes, no, I'm, I'm, I'm sure that that is true. And especially now that, that this has happened, you know, many people are like, I'm done with Scream. It doesn't matter what happens from here. Don't listen now. to people online. Uh -huh. That's not, Twitter's not, Twitter's not a real sample size of the population. Yeah, yeah, that's, that's. That's probably true. But anyway, um, yeah, I think that's probably the first move to try and bring back the old old hats and see if they can do anything there, which for me as a Scream fan is not interesting to me. Uh, you know, I, I'm I'm that's ready right. to move on from those characters. I think, you know, again, I, I talked about in the last movie a little, being a little bit dissatisfied with there being no stakes and that especially Gail, it seemed like it was her time to go after Dewey went in the fifth movie. Um, so, but, you know, it, it, we may be circling back there. Although I do, you know, trust Christopher Landon and I really enjoy his work for the most part. Um, he, he's been put in a very difficult position here and I don't, I don't know what the solution is, but. Um, I mean, this project could be, I, I, could be cooked. 
Yes, it, it could be. It, it, it's hard to imagine, even if they do release a film, that it's going to be end up being as successful as it could have been with, you know, Jen Ortega. Melissa Barrera, but to a greater degree, Jen Ortega involved. Yeah, I, I, just, I just think that I don't know what they had in terms of script, but I think that they're going to have to go back to the drawing board, surely, about whatever whatever they were going to do for Scream 7, they're going to have to start over, probably. Yeah, no, I mean, uh, there's pretty much no way they don't because, I mean, it's not like you're losing a supporting character. These are these are your two main characters. And the whole sort of trilogy, it seemed like, or however many movies they wanted to make, you know, the, the, the arc of this has been sort of following Melissa Barrera's character and her dealing with the fact that Billy Loomis is her father and the effect that that psychological effect that, that has on her. So... What if they made? A, what if they made? I don't know. What if they did something completely different and they met, made like a period piece where they go back and they do something not in the present day? It doesn't really work though. They can't do a prequel. Like prequel doesn't make any sense. Yeah, I, I mean know. Christopher Landon does like to do like the sci-fi horror sort of uh, you know crossovers a little bit with Freaky and Happy Death Day. Both have yeah. this. Very, not not hard sci-fi, but like very sort of you know like t we have time travel in uh, Happy <laughs> Death Day, and we have body swapping and um, freaky. Yeah. So you know, um, I could I could see that, but it would be a wild direction for the franchise to go in. It would be a wild direction. I don't really feel like that's very scream, um, and I frankly don't think that Christopher Land is going to have that kind of creative freedom on the franchise. So, I don't know. Maybe he will. I mean, why not hire... If you're going to hire Christopher Landon, why not let him do his particular let spin yeah. of, of sci-fi? But it doesn't... I don't know. I feel like that's not really Scream's thing unless they're really trying... Unless they're really trying to take that angle of keeping it fresh. But, I don't know. I'm not sure. Yeah, I'm not sure either, Scott. Uh, it's going to be interesting to see that. Uh, over to you. Yeah, that's the Scream franchise. Uh, <laughs> I don't have a good segue for this. I was going to make, say something like, oh, here's another piece of news that'll make you scream. Uh, but that doesn't really work super well. This is the Golden Globes. Scott, for a very long period of time, the Golden Globes have been back, but not really because they didn't have a distributor for the show itself. So they were going to presumably end up like last year's what SAG Awards just showing on YouTube as Netflix built out its live live show capabilities. So I think the SAG Awards this year will be broadcast live on Netflix. But uh, the Golden Globes have been salvaged from such a fate thanks to the CBS network acquiring the at least pay TV rights. And I assume the streaming rights via Paramount Plus as well. Uh, for the Golden Globe Awards. They are going to be opposite Sunday Night Football in the first Sunday of the new year. So they aren't. NBC last year did not choose to replace their Sunday Night Football broadcast and instead broadcast the Golden Globe Awards on a Tuesday. That obviously was not great for the ratings. I'm also sure the ratings would not have been good even on the Sunday slot. But CBS is going to give them a true try on Sunday this year and the awards will be as normal as they possibly could be with all of their controversy behind them with a new distribution deal. Although I'm sure with much, much, much lower fees paid to them 
for this for the distribution rights here. But Scott, what do you make of this? Are you happy that the sort of inaugural thing that started our podcast is back and we could do a Golden Globes episode this year? Or are you kind of like me and, and are just like, I don't care? I mean, look, the Golden Globes have been deeply unserious for a while. Uh, sure. I, I don't I don't think anything has changed in that regard. Um, no. You know, the the question, I guess, is, are we still going to pay attention to them? Which, sure, I, I, I will just because it's an award show. And, um, you know, it has some intrigue to us in that regard because, um, sure. you know, we, we follow what's going on with movies. I don't know in terms of is this a good predictor anymore of the um, the the Oscars or anything that is to come in the future? Um, I don't know. It seems like the, maybe that ship has sailed as far as the Golden Globes is concerned. But, um, I, I mean, sure. Like, it's going to be on, on network TV. I, realistically, I'm probably not going to be, uh, you know, paying attention to anything else that evening. So You're not going to be watching football? I, I, guess, I guess that's true. I guess football that's the could thing, be on. Right? But, uh, it's not could be. It yeah, will be on. It's opposite Sunday Night Football. It will be on. Um, that yeah. that is true. I it, I don't know what game it's going to be, but um, regardless, yeah. last week of the season, you know, it could be regular season, this, it could be a big game. This is a one-time thing. The Golden Globes. I, I will tune in just because it's something to to watch. That would have been true if it was on YouTube too, probably. So the fact that CBS has picked it up doesn't mean a whole lot to me, but, um, but it does I provide legitimacy gonna, to the award. Show. Right. I was going to say, right. I guess they're going to try right. their best to try and legitimize this again, which, um, I, I don't know. I feel, again, I feel like the ship has sailed on that. Um, I don't know uh, what steps they've made towards fixing their diversity issues, which of course was the thing that got the HFPA into hot water in the first place. It's um, certainly better now than it was before. Yeah. Yeah. But uh, I mean, again, even when, even back in the day when the Golden Globes were watched by a lot of people, you know, they're they're crazy. Like they're they're deeply unserious. As I said, they do the musical or comedy thing, which leads to some really, you know, bad results. But it can be an entertaining award show. They give them alcohol and stuff like that. So that's true. Sure. I mean, I think that the interesting factor here is that do most do the does the average person who turns on cbs on a sunday night care about the controversies of the hfpa or is he are they even aware of what the hfpa even is i guess is my question like are are is the average person just going to see that the golden globes is on tv and be like oh the golden globes that's like the second most popular like film award show i'm going to watch this now and i kind of feel like that probably is what it's like the fact that it is back and it is on cable like broadcast television like does the average i don't think the average person really cares about all the other stuff you know what i mean what do you think about that i'm not saying they're, yeah, they're, I, the viewing stats are going to be amazing like i think it's really difficult for them going up against sunday night football and i think that that's not going to bode well for them and they've lost relevance by just not being on tv basically in their usual slot for you know over three years now since the i guess 2020 so in three years but does the average person care about that i guess is my question i, I don't know i mean i i i'm not the average person so it's it's hard for yeah. me to would your to dad care about that. that for example no 
No. Or if he sees the Golden Globes on television, he's like, I'm going to watch that. I don't even well, know. He's going to say, I'm not going to watch it because he's not interested in, in it. But Okay. Um, well, then your mother. I don't know. I'm just saying, like, you, you know yeah, what I mean? I, like, I, I know what you're saying. I know what you're the saying. The reason he's not uh, interested is not because of the HFPA and the controversies and all the all the crap. It's because he wasn't going to watch it anyway. But yeah. Yes. Yes. You you may be right about that. Like, yeah. I, I guess that, you know, in, in the last two or three years, the question would be, has the the Golden Globes, the name the Golden Globes, gone out of the public consciousness to such a degree that people are going to be like, you know, I'm yeah. not interested in this anymore when they would have watched it three, four years ago. That's an award show problem in general. I think it, yeah. it's almost like a separate it's like a separate issue. Like the ratings are going to be bad, but not because people think the Golden Globes are like delegitimized by their controversies. It's because it seems like people just don't watch award shows anymore. That's probably, I mean, that's why NBC yeah. last year paid, agreed to put them back on the air and, for one year and, and negotiated getting out of the rest of their contract that I'm sure was very expensive and certainly was not going to return the ratings that would warrant that level of spend on it. So they have this deal reset. I don't know what they're getting paid by CBS and, and Paramount Global, their parent company, but it's certainly much lower than they were probably getting in 2020. Yeah, I mean, I, I'm sure that's true, and and you're right. The problem isn't a worship problem in general. The Oscars ratings have been plummeting, so yeah, um, every I, I can't see this being some sort of huge, you know, comeback Exception. moment for the Golden yeah. Globes. But like, it might be better than last year debuting on a random Tuesday, but yeah, it's not yes. going to be back to the heyday. I think that should do it for episode 255 of Some Like It, Scott. Scott, where can people find you on the social media? I'm at Scarvey Den on all platforms. And you can find me at, at Shelton2013 on platforms. You can also find our podcast on Patreon at www.patreon.com slash media plug pods. If you can pick a tier and support us over there, we'd appreciate that. If not, it's okay. You can still find us on Apple Podcasts and Spotify and wherever else you listen to your podcast, where we'd love it, reviewed, subscribed, shared, all that jazz. So we continue to reach a broader audience and, and listen to the Miyazaki countdown. We're reaching the end. We have yep. our Boy in the Heron episode in just a couple weeks. And it's been a great series. We we sort of really slammed this very quickly after the Anderson countdown, the Wes Anderson countdown earlier this year. I think it's been a bit of a grind probably to get all these episodes done, but well worth it for the excuse to watch all the Miyazaki movies leading into Boy in the Heron. I think there's been some really great discussions over there. So check that out if you're interested. Uh, the Miyazaki movies are certainly worth it. If you've never seen them before, you should check those out and check out the boy and the heron in just a couple weeks. But in the meantime, we appreciate you for taking time to listen to us today, chat about Napoleon. We'll be back next week before the boy and the heron with a discussion of May, December, the new Todd Haynes film that is releasing on Netflix. We hope you'll join us for that. But until then, for Scott Harvey, I'm Scott Shelton. We'll see you next time.